0: This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, all the focus in weight loss is on the diet. But what do you do when the diet is over? Plus, beyond diet and exercise, what factors play a role in the freshman 15? But first, how to find your path to total wellness, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Well, the entire concept of wellness is more than one that just fits into the medical model of physical health. And joining us with his own concept of what constitutes wellness is Dr. Koshal Nanavati. He's Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Director of Integrative Medicine at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Nanavati. Thanks Thank for coming in. Now, you bring a very special orientation to wellness. Just give us a feeling. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I think about the position of a clinician or a doctor and the, th- the word health care and we focused on disease management disease orientation for a long time with prevention management innovation but when it comes to helping people to optimize their living experience i think about wellness as being the roots uh, of how we can get people grounded in a life routine that brings them contentment and peace
0: so one of so in order to get to that i mean place of peace so to speak or that grounded feeling there are there's more to it than just, let's say, exercise and diet, and although those those might be components, and those are the things we mostly focus on. So give us an overview of what you think are kind of the important elements then.
1: Well, when you think about life and the living experience, uh, you think about the mind, the body, the spirit. Uh, You think about people in context of themselves, their relationships, their community. Uh, And so helping people to understand that the physical health uh, is one aspect of their wellness, but the mind, the spirit, their relationship with themselves uh, and with community are just as important. So I like to talk about uh, what I call the Core Four: nutrition, physical exercise, stress management, and spiritual wellness. Uh, and that it's broader than a religious perspective. It's about understanding your stage in life, your place in community, with yourself, and how do you optimize that experience so that you can be content with your content. Uh, so to speak.
0: That's very interesting. That's a very good way of putting it, because obviously what you're suggesting is that we don't exist in a vacuum, that we're not just, we all are obviously individuals and unique individuals, but we we exist in a context, and that context is both an internal context and obviously the external context in terms of Relate, as you said, relationships, community, our spirituality, and all of those things play a very important role in somehow achieving this so-called wellness.
1: That's right. And you think about stress and distress and what we see in our communities and our society, and especially in the world at large these days, uh, and think about yourself in relationship. Um, you're a part of every relationship you're in. And so it's sort of like the spokes on a wheel with you being at the center. You know, you can either focus on trying to impact every spoke or you can focus on strengthening yourself. And what happens is if you're not content or at peace, then none of those relationships have a chance for peace. But the minute you are, all of those relationships have a chance for contentment and peace. And so is it easier to work on 50 or is it easier to work on one? <laughs> and too often we ignore ourselves uh, and that's where the problem starts. So
0: instead of trying to change everyone else, you really have to start with the number one.
1: That's exactly right.
0: So how did you come to this very interesting? And f- first of all, I hear you focusing a lot on the word peace, that peace somehow is um, essential for achieving wellness. And I, and obviously, it's not just peace. Well, it's peace in the world, hopefully, but it starts with peace within. That's right. So how did you, where did you develop this perspective? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So I mean, my background, uh, I was born in India. Uh, and when I was seven, I moved to Rochester. My father was a homeopathic uh, medicine practitioner, uh, and my grandfather was a village doctor, Uh, so this is something that's been inherent in in who I am, but uh, in college I also minored in literature and philosophy. And so looking at world philosophies, understanding world cultures over time, what you start to see are common themes. And especially having worked in healthcare for the last two decades, you think about uh, stress, distress, and what I see with patients oftentimes, and there's a lot of common theme that comes up. And a lot of that relates to people not being satisfied or content or at peace in their own life. And what this does is leads to distress, but biochemically, it leads to a response in the body that increases stress or cortisol. Uh, And that can also have an impact on chronic disease when we talk about cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, uh, as well as inflammation that can lead to bowel irregularities, autoimmune conditions. So this word peace... Uh, is one that actually represents a state of being where the body is not as stressed. Uh, and so that actually helps in the healing process and maintaining health.
0: So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm here with Dr. Koshal Nanavati, and we're talking about his core four pillars of wellness and how one can achieve um, health, I guess, wellness and health. But these concepts are fascinating, and in a way, a, a little bit of a different way of looking at the entire experience of, of life and health. But how do you? How does one get there? Now, you recently had just has have just completed a book called "The Core Four of Wellness." Tell us about that, the book, and what's in the book, and you know, let's talk a little bit more about how people can get. effectuate some of these concepts, put them into practice.
1: So uh, the uh, the book actually uh, started, my son is 14 now, when he was two, uh, and I had been married for about five years at that time. My wife uh, said one day, you know, I actually buy into what you're talking about now. So I already had one over, you know, arguably my toughest audience. <laughs> and uh, so she said, why don't you put it in book form so other people can get it, even outside of your own practice. So I started when he was two. And then over the years, the joke became that, you know, if you ever actually finish it, she said, you know, I'll publish it for you. So uh, this year we finished it. Um, And so we published it, self-published. But the goal is really to share information that I've been sharing with patients over the years related to nutrition, Uh, focusing on the best evidence. So Harvard has an evidence-based food plate that's based on all the current evidence we have. Uh, So it details that to some degree. Uh, So that
0: tells you what to eat?
1: What to eat. What
0: amounts to eat? Uh,
1: And prioritizing in the major categories. So the idea is helping people to get their big rocks in place because then the pebbles and sand can sort of take care of themselves versus focusing on the sand or the pebbles. Uh, exercise the who has some great guidelines the healthy people 2020 objectives and so giving people that core information that takes care of that big rock
0: so back back up for a second so diet you've gone to a great source with, with that the harvard program and exercise another great source so you're giving that to people in the within your book. Within the book, okay. And what's the third? And
1: then with stress management, uh, the simple concept, and I call it simple, uh, the idea of owning what's yours and letting go of the rest. Uh, it's a big challenge, right? I see so you smiling. See, I'm
0: smiling. <laughs> I'm clearly smiling. So how does that, let's define that a little bit better? Say more about what that
1: means. That's right. So uh, for people, it's a simple exercise where you can. Take some time to reflect on all the things that are stressors or distressors in your life. Uh, I actually had one person bring in, you know, eight pages when I asked them to do this. (laughs) And then I said, now split it into two columns. Things I can do something about, things I can't control. And she came back, and the one page was hers to own. The other seven were stresses in her life, but she wasn't directly responsible for them. And what it does is it allows you to focus on the things in your life that you can do something about, right? Make the change where you can impact it. And for those things that you don't directly control, you don't have to own them, right?
0: But if you don't own them, how then do you cope with them, I guess is the next question. And
1: so what happens is whenever your mind goes to focusing on those things, come back to your list of things you can do something about. Take one, make an action plan, get it off your plate, get a nice permanent marker, and then erase it. And as you see your active item list shrinking, you know you're actively managing your life. And you're less distressed knowing that you're being the best that you can be for yourself. Uh, And that's truly the best we can be. I just came from teaching a first-year medical student class. And what we told them was being the best isn't always in your control, but being your best is. Personal best. That's correct.
0: But let's get back to this idea of stress. So do you give concrete suggestions for, besides taking action on a particular stressor, if there are things that... um, if, if you're feeling high levels of stress, obviously, as you alluded to earlier, they develop you know, higher levels of cortisol, all kinds of bodily reactions, somatizations, all kinds of issues. What do you recommend for people as the best way to reduce stress?
1: So besides healthier nutrition, which can help reduce inflammation, and exercise, which helps with cortisol, the idea of deep breathing. We talk about meditation. Some people are turned off by that word still in our society, thinking of it as a secular activity. But the reality is it's about deep breathing. And every world culture, every great philosophy uh, has mechanisms by which people can take time to reflect, uh, to connect, uh, and deep breathing or meditation are another way to do that. So uh, I teach people how to do something called golden light meditation. Yes, I was
0: going to ask you that because I think besides the fact that people can be turned off quote unquote from the concept of meditation, I think a lot of people don't understand how to get there. That's right. It's, uh, it's very kind of elusive and, and there's so much material out there that's linked also to theology that people may be put off by that that's
1: right and there's a science behind it so the idea of deep breathing in through the nose out to the mouth uh, you can breathe in for five seconds eight seconds ten seconds start with a few sh- shorter time and then increase that and breathing out through the mouth but when you breathe in it's abdominal breathing so your belly comes out when that happens the diaphragm goes down your lungs expand in the areas where you have the greatest volume so you get more oxygen in Uh, That helps to also blow off carbon dioxide, which is a trigger for anxiety. So I tell people to visualize a golden light at the top of their head. And when they breathe in, just see that light expanding outward. And when they breathe out, see it going down into the body, soaking your body like a sponge, taking it down into your fingertips, down to your toes, and then slowly bringing it back. Uh, And in doing that, in that process, the mind can wander. Our mind is restless at times. When it does, just come back to the light. It's a simple thing, and it can take 2 minutes, it can take 10 minutes, people can do it for longer periods. Uh, Even 10 deep breaths alone can have an impact on reducing anxiety by blowing off the carbon dioxide so that you're not about to trigger an anxiety attack. Uh, So one simple breath can interrupt a pattern. Uh, A friend of mine named David G. uh, travels the world teaching this. Uh, It's called a pattern interrupt breath. So, if you're distressed. Say that
0: again, the pattern interrupt breath. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And
1: so, in that, at any point, if you're distressed, just take one deep breath, and what it does creates a pause in the pattern that was causing you distress, so that now you can reflect and change direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that I've been doing with patients recently is instead of trying to change your life 180 degrees, how about starting with one degree of change, right? Impact one simple thing, see how the worldview looks. If you like it, stay there. If you don't, make one degree of change until you get to that place where you're contented and you're finding peace. And again, for a person at 20 versus 40 at 60, the same person at different stages in their life may find that different things define contentment and peace for them. And so we do need to take time to reflect throughout our life about where we are, are we contented, are we at peace, And every fork in the road where we have to make decisions, if we choose our peace, then we're constantly building a life that's grounded in our peace.
0: Yeah, that's very well said. And it strikes me that it's very, very important to do something that you just said, which is to take time, to stop and think and pause and reflect. And whether it's through deep breathing or some other methodology, to take time. And I think in our very harried lives These days, with 24-7 news cycles, with being plugged into every kind of apparatus on the planet, it's very common that people are not taking those kinds of reflective moments to stop and pause and reflect and to maybe even change direction as a result. And
1: and we're all scheduled, right? We all have schedules. I came here at a scheduled time. We have a scheduled time. So we don't put in our schedule a time for ourselves. Uh, Just yesterday, I told a patient, you know, you need to put that in your schedule, and that way you can be better off.
0: Let's get to the fourth thing. So we we went through diet, we went through exercise, we went through um, stress and spirituality very quickly because we're going to run out of time.
1: So with spiritual wellness, the focus is contentment and peace. And understanding that the word selfish is not a bad word when it means self-care, self-love, and self-respect. So most of us aren't selfish enough. I'd encourage our audience to start being more selfish and uh, taking care of themselves, focusing on their wellness.
0: Yeah, very important words. I think that word selfish has a very negative connotation in our, um, in our world. And I came up with my own over the course of many years, and I said self full And I think that's something that's very important in many people especially in today's world where we're juggling so many responsibilities, they have a really hard time learning how to do that. Right. So I thank you so much for coming in and sharing this with us. Your book is out there. I hope people decide to take a look at it. But in any case, your work is very, very important. Thanks so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Koshal Nanavati, Assistant Professor of Family Medicine at Upstate Medical University, and um, he's also the Director of Integrative Medicine at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink here. Up. All the focus in weight loss is on the diet. But what do you do when the diet is over? Upstate's Health Link on Air. Linda Cohen along with you. Diets are abundant. They're all claiming overnight or long term success. But the truth is that most of us find ourselves geared up during a diet but at a loss as to what to do after it's over. Here with some un- advice for this common quandary is Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks. Thanks I for always, having me. I always enjoy your perspective. <laughs> you always have some very, very valuable tips for us. Thanks. So during the course, you know, when you know, losing weight clearly is the greatest challenge, uh, especially if you've got a lot of pounds to lose. Mm-hmm. But the common dilemma is, you know, what do you do when the diet's over? And obviously, that the whole notion of successfully maintaining your weight is really a challenge for many 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 people yes definitely so you've looked into a certain registry it's called the national weight control registry yes tell us about it and what does it have to teach us
2: well, it's a great thing I think a lot of people don't know about. You can actually join this registry. They do surveys, they do questionnaires, and they are looking at what successes have people had and how have had, how have they had those successes in terms of maintaining their weight. Um, they've looked at, oh, they've tracked over 10,000 individuals, all right? They look at behavioral, they look at psychological as well as what you're doing as far as your nutrition how, how activity they ga- level. How do they gather this information? Um, people join so people can join and then they do the surveys in terms the of it so they're asking people through like how did you do this what 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 are you doing so we can get that perspective because i think I like this because I think all too often it's negative and we're all like, yeah, everyone loses weight, but then you're going to gain it back. So then people go, oh, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't be really trying, but why bother? This, is, yeah, this is showing that people are actually doing it. So it's something positive instead of all the negative that we hear that, wow, there are people out there doing it. Um, and it's a really interesting site because you can go in there and people offer tips to each other.
0: Um, and it's free. I mean, it's just something you can join in terms of it. And that's an online site. It's an online site. Yep. So you can not only join it, but you could also learn from it. You definitely can. So let's can. talk. Talk a little bit about what you found the the successful people have done to keep, and on average, what are we talking about in terms of weight loss for these Um, people? On an
2: average, members have lost an average of 66 pounds and have kept it off for five and a half years. that's pretty significant. That's pretty significant. 45% lost it on their own. 55% lost it with the help of a program. So again, you've got to find out what works for you. And I think that's the individual part that's so important. 98% reported that they modified their food intake in some way to lose the weight. And then 94% figure Increase their physical activity. So those are two very important facts very important facts
0: that you really do. I mean, it seems like a no brainer. You have to, <laughs> right. you have to, you have to do something with your food intake, obviously, right? And, and exercise. And so, exercise. So those are two very important factors, but ones that you would be predicting would yes. be the case. Yes. So were, were there any tidbits or any? Yeah, there were some great ones. Um, you
2: know, one of the important ones I liked was seventy eight percent of the people ate breakfast every day. So when I look at that, I think. Oh, that's something we, you know, we promote as dietitians, And people think, well, I don't really like breakfast. But think about it. If you start your day with something, your focus, you've had, even if it's a quick, you know, piece of fruit and some yogurt or a piece of toast with peanut butter or something, you've had something. It, it's something to get you started, get your metabolism going in terms of it. I think what happens when people don't eat breakfast I see people then start snacking and then the mindset is, well, I really didn't have anything. I didn't have any breakfast and I'm getting a little hungry. Once that hunger starts, I think that's an issue. So I think that's a really important key. 75% of the um, people in this uh, their weight control registry survey weigh themselves once a week. So again, to me, a baseline. You don't have to do it every day. Some people like to do it every day. That again, individual, but you have a baseline. You check yourself. If you want to weigh on a Monday, you weigh every Monday. If you want to weigh every Wednesday, but they are judging. They are there's an accountability factor. I think there. Um, you know, some people don't have to write it down; it's just in their mind. Sixty-two percent less. Um, I mean, watch less than ten hours of TV. That's so. That's a significant thing.
0: <clears throat> Excuse me. No problem. That no, he has to clear that. <clears throat> That's a very significant yes. finding, actually, something mm-hmm. you really do want to pay attention right. to. So when you think so of you're that. you're less sedentary. You're
2: less sedentary. And what are you less prone to? Watching TV commercials. I remember my husband, Um, he had a procedure. So he had to sit there and watch TV. And he's like, I've never seen so many... Food commercials. So again, when you're thinking of that, you're not sitting there going, "Oh, that looks good. Maybe I'll have a snack." Not even thinking, "Am I so really it's subliminally truly really, right?" Really so we stoking, get into that, that stoking late night snacking. In also,
0: terms of- I, it strikes me, and this is something we've talked about before, and other people have talked about, is this notion of mindful eating. Definitely. It seems to me, if you're watching TV or you're into something that's kind of grabbing your attention, you're much less likely to pay attention to what it is you're eating, mm-hmm. and therefore you may also pay less attention to whether you're full that's right so you're you're kind of distracted
2: yes Yes. and then
0: you just tend to maybe eat 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 Eat, and just keep shoveling right
2: yeah because a lot of times what um what people do is they get it i call it like their little zone they're in their little favorite chair they're in their little comfort zone they're watching tv they are not focusing on what they're eating it's like oh yeah i think i'm hungry oh yeah someone else is having popcorn give me some popcorn again no idea in terms of did I chew it? Did I taste it? Did I really need it? Was I really hungry in terms of it? Um, another idea in, in terms of what they've done is 90% of the people average an exor- um, exercise about an hour a week. Most through walking. You mean an day. I mean an average an hour a day. So. Yeah. Um, so they've done it through mostly through walking. So it doesn't have to be joining a gym. It doesn't have to be, you know, doing a spin class. It can be just something basic. We all can get a pair of sneakers we can walk here, you can walk at work, you can walk after work, we can walk.
0: And make yourself, you know, have more opportunities to walk that you might not consider, like maybe don't park right next to the store. Right. If you have a big parking lot, you can walk a little bit. Right. Yeah, and, and I think if, if this is, I think this is true in, in other conversations I've had with actually exercise physiologists, it isn't necessarily sustained um, cont- continuous exercise that is as important as just Throughout the day, throughout having the day. bursts of energy mm-hmm. and exercise that right. you can feel like you are moving, so keeping moving is right. really important. And
2: that I think that's sometimes people think, well, I can I don't have an hour, but do you have fifteen minutes here? Just like you're saying, fifteen minutes here, fifteen minutes here. Can I take a twenty-minute, you know, lunch lunch break instead, or climb the stairs climb rather the stairs, than taking the taking elevators. the elevator? Right, definitely. So these are all easy things: breakfast, decreased TV trying to weigh yourself and increasing your physical activity. And this is where the people have seen the good results in keeping the weight off.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin. We're talking about what to do when the diet is over. Now, that whole word diet is a problem. It and is. I know you have a philosophy <laughs> on this and I've thought this throughout my life that the whole concept of being on a diet sets up all kinds of psychological issues yes. for people. Yes, because when people say, I'm on a diet, they tend to think
2: deprivation, I'm going to be on this for a limited period of time, I'm going to lose weight, maybe make the doctor happy, do what I need to do, then I'll go back, I'll go back to the way I'm eating. When we think of that, we are setting ourselves up for, oh, I can't have this, or I shouldn't have that, where if you think of it in terms of long-term lifestyle changes, I need to lose some weight, be realistic about. Setting a goal in terms of that. Look at what you're doing. Do you eat just like we were talking about? Do you eat in front of the TV? Do something and saying, every time I'm having a snack, let's eat at the kitchen table.
0: And in addition to that, when you're the whole notion of being on a diet versus off, off the diet, diet is mm-hmm. part of the problem too. That's right. That somehow even if you have a positive attitude toward the diet, mm-hmm. now that you're off the diet, you tend to slip back into right. perhaps less focused eating yes. habits. Mm-hmm. And, and less that's aware. The key.
2: It's focused that in terms of what do you want to focus for you and your own individual lifestyle and your own individual needs in terms of that. Everyone's on a diet. Well I'll have to be on a diet to eat. It's but we use that in terms of that that whole focus and thought is diet oh yeah I gotta go on a diet nope we need to look we need to start changing that as much as we can because it's important also is it
0: really also is it really important to make sure that the goals that you have are maybe you know clearly thought out realistic maybe not too vague Mm mm-hmm You know, focused goals, as I said, but also maybe not too strict. Definitely. Because, again, you have to, are you doing it
2: because you read it on an online article or someone had, somebody else had success with that? You have to do goals that are going to be specific to work for you. It's something as easy as if you're a a night person, but you're telling yourself to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go for a walk is that realistic for you? That's not. It's hard to to sustain. Yeah. You need to look and say, I'm a night person, so I'm going to do an evening walk. That's what you have to look at. What goal is going to work for you? That's realistic and that you can actually do. Don't set yourself up.
0: So how about things, for example, like people are talking about drinking a lot of water or enough water. How important is that in terms of maintaining your weight? Well, there's different
2: thoughts and views on it. I think it's an important thing because I think sometimes people tend to think that they might be hungry. Then they might just actually be thirsty in terms of it. A glass of water is something that it will make you get up from that chair, go to the kitchen sink, get the glass of water. And then maybe you have time to actually think, maybe I'm not really hungry for a snack. Maybe I was just thirsty. This is all I need. But it gives you that break. I think that's what. So I think water is very important.
0: How about some just common sense things like would you recommend not keeping kind of um, fattening foods in the house, for example? Does that help people in terms of their, you know, their shopping habits, for oh, example? Oh,
2: I think so because, again, sometimes people have certain things in the house, and when you know, I would do like an interview with them, I'd say, who are you buying them for? And then they would think about it. No one else in the house might want them. They're buying them for themselves. So if you're the one and you know where those cookies are that you like, they're there. Where if you want cookies, go out, buy yourself a cookie, bring a cookie home, enjoy the cookie. So that really can I think it can make make a big difference. difference. How
0: about things like shopping, food shopping when you're hungry? Again, does that make a difference? Uh I know these sound like kind of...
2: it sound basic, but it's stuff we need to think about. If you're running in after work and you haven't had lunch, you're going to be the person that's going to grab that thing because it looks good. And then, oh, I'd like this, and I'd like a little thing of snacks. I think it's very, very important. And go with a list. I know that sounds basic too, but... Go with your list because then you'll be prepared. You won't be susceptible to all those things that are on the aisles and all the wonderful-looking
0: cookies and cakes and candies that are out there. What's your philosophy also on this idea of grazing versus three square meals a day? I know I've heard different philosophies, and clearly when you're on a diet, everything's regimented, so you're following a particular meal plan. But then when it's over, you're kind of left to your own devices. What makes sense in terms of how to approach when to eat
2: well i think i tend to like if if again you have to look at each individual but if you are the person that you like small little meals and that tends to be satisfying for you i think that's good i don't like the concept that i can never have a snack and i think people think oh i should never have a snack if you like snacks put them in I personally like a mid-afternoon snack. It helps me get to the evening, you know. But that's definitely a personal thing. But you do have to be careful because the grazing means that you're not actually thinking of it. And, again, when we go back to those goals, mindful mindful eating, set an approximate time. Like, I'm going to have my snack time between 1 and 2, not, like, Oh, I'll have it whenever. Again, you want to be mindful that you're hungry. You want to be mindful that you're eating that snack because you actually are hungry and you want a snack. So some degree
0: of structure really is important. Structure is important. So this idea of diet, you're structured, off diet, you're not, really can't work. Right. Because you're like setting you have, yourself up. It's not thing. like you have to be terribly rigid. No. Mm-mm. But right. you need to have some sense of structure right? And, and how you approach food. Yes. Is having a buddy important? I think having a buddy is very
2: important. Probably a lot in terms of physical activity that you can get someone to go and walk with you. Um, you can have someone just to talk because, to me, that's a stress level. We can relieve it through walking in terms of it. Some people work good with a buddy system when they're trying to make those dietary changes other people do not. And again, that's where you have to individually, how do I work? Am I good telling my friend that I want to lose weight or do I want to keep it private? Do I want to get my family involved? You really have to look at how you as an individual, how that is going to affect you because sometimes people turn into the food police and then that totally sets people up. You're not that's going to a tell me what to do. Right. Sure. So you want to go towards that positive aspect. What's going to be positive for me? If my friend's going to help me, great. If they're going to drive me crazy, then I need to know that, that they don't need to know about that. Yeah. So it's definitely, and it's a personal thing. It's such a personal thing that we need to, we, we need to think about
0: that. So just bottom line, what's your, just what's what you want to leave people with?
2: I want to leave people with that you can lose weight. It is going to take time, all right? But be kind to yourself, be realistic, And you can set maintain. small goals, and then you can maintain. It might, it's going to take time sometimes if you have a large amount of weight to lose. But think positive, go slow. Go slow and enjoy life and, and enjoy eat things. slow and eat slow and <laughs> savor
0: your food. <laughs> Thanks so much. My guest has been Maureen Franklin, registered dietitian, nutritionist with Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Beyond diet and exercise, what creates the freshman 15? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen here with you. Students, headed off to college, beware. The infamous freshman 15 is for real. Studies have shown that nearly one in four freshmen gain at least five percent of their body weight, an average of about ten pounds, during their first semester and that's just the beginning. Here to discuss this and the whys and wherefores of this problem is Dr. Tanya Horacek, a registered dietitian and professor of nutrition in the Department of Public Health, Food Studies and Nutrition from Falk College at Syracuse University. Welcome Dr. Horacek, thank you for coming in. Thank you Linda, it's a pleasure to be here. So the college students, college students are really at risk for excessive weight gain it seems. Tell us about that, is this a real phenomenon? It
3: is, it is. Unfortunately, college students are just like the rest of the American public and that about 30% are right now overweight or obese and that has increased over the past 10 years. And so they're on the same trajectory as all Americans in terms of their risk for weight gain.
0: But is there something unique either about that age group or about the experience of going away to college that may contribute I mean we're going to talk in more detail about what you found as far as contributing factors but the mere fact that you're that this whole idea of the freshman 15 what could be driving that definitely
3: there are contributing factors and they do gain a significant amount in those first couple of semesters part of it is the newness of being on your own maneuvering the dining hall going out eating out drinking unfortunately so there's quite a few factors that do contribute
0: yeah people have often said it's the beer mm-hmm. or they or the the freedom that they now have mm-hmm. to drink whenever they want I mean I don't, I don't think it's quite that excessive but and also do you think there's something about the meal plan or the fact that they can eat as much as they want in any given set setting that plays a role there that too? that
3: is an adjustment and unfortunately most students say they don't like the dining hall when actually they have access to 500 different foods a wonderful environment where they really could learn and taste a variety of things but they fall into a habit of always going and eating what they like and then they also do have access to high calorie desserts and other foods that they could have at every meal if they wanted
0: so i mentioned that there's there's usually about a five percent increase in their body weight in the first semester Mm -hmm. what is the trajectory that they're in engaged in at that point? Does it continue it, at it does, rate? It does slow down. So we do see
3: significant weight gain in the first year. It does level off. And then um, typically when they move off campus, it levels off a little bit. But,
0: Most of the time when you think about that kind of weight gain, as we talked about initially, we talked about the fact that they're exposed perhaps to more food or they may eat at odd hours, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things that could play a role. But People often, therefore, they think about diet, but then they also think about exercise or lack thereof. Are those the two still the most two crucial factors that play a role?
3: So how that's balancing out. They're pretty good with exercise. About 60% of college students are getting the minimum 150 minutes a week, but it might not be enough. There's a little bit of excess calories, really low on the fruits and vegetables. Only about 11% are meeting the five cups a day. So it's really low on the fruits and vegetables.
0: So it's the nature of what they're eating. Yes.
3: Low whole grains. And now with the whole scare and all these current fad diets, they're not even eating carbs. So that's a contributing factor. Sugar-sweetened beverages. We see young men probably more so drinking the sodas. And young women, the coffee drinks. Those contribute. They all add up. So So in truth, that is still true, that it is diet and exercise. That is the typical balance equation that we've looked at. And it does come back to a lot of that in versus out. But we know there are other factors. I mean, genetics is also a factor. But we're also finding other factors like uh, sleep and eating competence um, that they might be contributing factors.
0: Yeah, helping us understand that. So when you say sleep... What role does sleep play, either in, in, hypothetically or in fact, because I know you've done some research we'll talk about in a minute. What, what role does it play? So sleep, we can
3: look at total number of hours of sleep per night. And even with the adult population, the lower the number of hours of sleep, the higher likely you are to eat um, poor quality foods, higher body weight those associations
0: so, so in, in in essence what you're saying is it's not the fact that the person is sleep deprived but what sleep deprivation does is have them perhaps be less regulated in their food interests or in their appetite
3: partly i mean these are all associations we don't actually always know causation which one came first or second but the other way we could look at sleep is also sleep quality and one of the tools we use is the pittsburgh sleep quality index and it measures seven parameters. So one is your self-perception of the quality of your sleep. Another is latency, so how quickly you're able to fall asleep. Then it's duration, how long you actually sleep. Efficacy, so you're in bed, but how much of it are you actually sleeping. Uh, Sleep disturbances, waking up in the middle of the night or being woken up early in the morning need for medication use, sleep medications, and then finally, uh, the effect the next day, the effects of sleep dysfunction. So if you're overly sleepy, or overly tired the next day. So each of those have an equal weighting that contribute to an overall sleep quality
0: score. So that's something you've used to try to evaluate if in fact college students are experiencing sleep issues. Yes, yep. And what have you found? We'll get to those in a minute. Let's
3: talk about eating competence first. Okay. So eating competence is the other factor that, first of all, we were all born eating competent. I would think so. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That um, you cried when you were hungry. You kind of pushed the spoon away when you were full. It was mom's job to feed on a consistent schedule, offer a nice variety of foods. That was the basic role. And then the child's role is to actually decide what they want to eat and how much they want to
0: eat. And often it was a battle. Right, yeah. (laughs) Not in the very beginning, but over time it became, I would think, for a lot of parents, a battle. Eat your vegetables, yeah, rather than the sugary cereals
3: or whatever. So yes, there are influences that affect even eating competence. So we're born eating competent, and over time because of diets, because of preferences, because of how we're raised and what we're given access to, you know, there's a decrease in eating competence so eating competence is made up of four characteristics and so this kind of balances out what we're eating so what are the what are the the characteristics that determine eating competence so one is eating attitude and it's how flexible and open you are you know
0: kind of getting away from the rules that you really enjoy eating you mean you might be more adventuresome in terms of tasting things or trying things that you hadn't experienced before that might be part of it yep And then another is actual food acceptance. So the variety of
3: the foods you like and your willingness to actually try new foods. So one is your whole overall attitude. Second is your willingness to try new foods. Then it's internal regulation. So how well we really pay attention to hunger and fullness. And now you don't have to always eat when you're hungry and always stop with your full.
0: But you want to respect that. So it's a little bit of like that mindfulness exactly. a, a, around your satiety, whether you really are. Mm-hmm. You need that extra brownie mm-hmm. <laughs> after you've already eaten two. Exactly,
3: exactly. Mm-hmm. And this has one more component to uh, eating competence, and that's contextual skills. And it's not that you have to like have the perfect diet in mind, but it's how well you plan ahead, how well you're able to pick off a fast food menu or have cooking skills. It's, so it's the skills for managing eating.
0: And sometimes we just don't have those. So all of those four things together make for eating competence. competence. Yeah. And in a second, we'll get to what that is. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Professor of Nutrition Dr. Tanya Horachek, and we're talking about excessive weight gain that many college students experience, and what has made that happen. So you've been studying these factors, whether it be eating competence as well as sleep quality and duration, as well as the diet and exercise for like over 20 years and all of their interconnectedness. So what have
3: you found? So one of our recent analysis, we did a multiple regression. And so the subjects that were overweight or obese, that was about 30% of the sample, they were more likely to be female, non-white older age between the 18 and 24 we're talking about older in the college age years. So 23 to 24 if anything. Mm -hmm. Lower sleep quality so that comes back to the Pittsburgh sleep quality index and then lower eating competence and higher emotional eating. So those are all associations that we're seeing with higher weight. It's not causation but we're seeing linkages that these factors are contributing or might be contributing to overweight and obesity
0: so basically you're saying it's mostly women mm-hmm. and it's mostly white women is that correct no actually not not white women mm-hmm. non-white right non-white. okay non-white women that are mostly overweight and they're a little bit older age mm-hmm. and they have sleep issues and they have um eating competence issues right so how do you explain that what is wh- what hypotheses do you draw from this
3: Good good question. Um, <laughs> it's all interconnected. It really is all interconnected. How it's not just about the fruits and vegetables or the exercise, it's about the whole attitude of how we think about everything. So when they get caught up in the diet cycle um, and they're not really getting competent, everything contributes. You know, we're not really sure exactly how the sleep contributes, but we know sleep is an important factor to maintain a healthy body weight. So we're not sure exactly which comes first or second.
0: So you've been involved also in this process in a little bit of time we have left in doing interventions to try to change this whole scene. What have you found? What has worked with yeah. college students? So they're a tough group.
3: They're really a tough group because they're in the transition years. They don't really feel that they're at risk. And so our interventions have been challenging to say the least. Um, it's always been randomized treatment controls. They've always been three-month interventions that they had online, access to online uh, lessons, and then we would follow up a year later. And we were able to make small improvements. You know, In s- terms of weight loss? No. No, actually not. We never were really able to affect their anthropometric measures. It was more so slight changes in their fruit and vegetable intake, modest increases in uh, physical activity, little better sleep and some of those things don't last the 15 months and so they're really a very tough group to um so they're intractable (laughs)
0: they gain the weight
3: and they stay that way um it levels off it levels off but the problem is is you know this is a very formidable time that they're learning habits that will carry with them into their adulthood yes into their child raising years that um we're really trying to help them, you know, set on a good But course. are they
0: any different? You said in the beginning as we started talking that this is really kind of um, equivalent to or a subset of what's happening in the, the larger population, and yet you're saying they're also a little bit perhaps more difficult to intervene with. What lessons can we take away from that, if any? Well, because they are
3: on the cusp, because it is a transition phase, we're so convinced that it's an important target that we need to continue to try to help because first of all they're the next generation of parents and this cycle is going to continue with you know low eating competence and low levels of sleep and higher weight gain and leading to chronic diseases so the more that we can do to really help this population you know not be so focused on the perfect diet fruits vegetables um, and exercise but to become more eating competent to really accept a variety of foods and and think about things a little bit more flexibly um, to really try a variety of foods. You'd be surprised how limited the foods are that students like. It's a pretty narrow short list.
0: So you would say that almost the greatest, um, greatest factor in all of this is to raise their eating competence, their ability to explore, be open to other kinds of foods. Rather than to change their amounts or their exercise or any of that. You think that's the biggest I think, factor?
3: I think that overriding factor is going to make the biggest difference. Improving the fruits and vegetables will follow. Improving the exercise will follow. You want to balance out. All of
0: these are interconnected. And so if we can improve the eating competence, broaden their awareness of and receptivity to different types of food. Mm-hmm. And their, context, and their contextual skills, you know, how well they are able to fend for themselves. Take care of themselves, mm-hmm. cook for themselves, mm-hmm. produce, if not produce, then prepare their own meals and that kind right. of thing. Right, right. And then the sleep also. And improve their sleep quali- yeah. ha- habits as well. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming in. This is very interesting, very interesting research, and, and I'm sure that you'll continue. Obviously, they're a group that need to continue to be studied. Exactly. And... Uh, if, if only, is the bellwether, as you said, <laughs> to what else is going on in our society. Right. Very good. Well, thanks so much for coming in and sharing your information. My guest has been Dr. Tanya Horachik, a registered dietitian, professor of nutrition in the Department of Public Health Food Studies and Nutrition for the Fall College at Syracuse University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The
4: Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Pam Freeman works in the medical school at SUNY Upstate as a standardized patient, teaching medical students how to acquire the skills of interviewing patients and really listening to their stories. Her poem, Where Does It Hurt?, is a remarkable example of the story within a story. Where does it hurt? Well, since you asked, remember, you said, tell me where it hurts. I got thinking about it. You already know the places that show up on the scans and the other places those places gossip with, snickering in their cruel, contorting language of pain. But since you asked, and I got thinking about it, it also hurts in my daughter her eyes the sad sky of this room, and in her little son, who clutches a plastic army man and is too young to understand, as we tritely put it, although so am I, if you must know, and I bet you are too. It also hurts, I'm told, in my daughter's resentful ex-husband. Of course, everything seems specifically to take aim at him. His resentments I actually do understand, Or at least I get where they're coming from. I always did, and wished I could have warned her there wasn't a thing to be done about them. The world would simply multiply his misery, and she'd keep taking on half. But it wouldn't have made a difference, because love makes you believe you can fix life itself. She wheels her guilt in here and quietly hooks it up, one more machine to supervise me, drawing its own conclusions. Me? I'm past warning anyone at this point. Nobody wants it. And besides, do I look wise or successful in this wrinkled calico tent of a hospital gown, my eyebrows gone hairless, lending an expression of perpetual blank amazement? No, dispensing wisdom is not my place anymore, which leads me to wonder what my place is. If I, in fact, have one. Pardon all this blah-blah, it's the illusion of ego, the lifeline of, I am. I mean, right? I am. Aren't I? Right. So therefore, I must matter. But what if it's the other way around, and when you cease to matter, you cease to exist, and the language in your body is trying to say, you're excused now. That's where it hurts, since you ask.
0: Joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we learn the capabilities of a region's only Level 1 trauma center, plus, the state of maternal m- mortality today, and how to prepare your child for a mental health appointment. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it. Just go on to iTunes and search for Healthlink on Air. That's all one word. You can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash What'sup. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.